I'm not a college football hero, nor am I the owner of one of the most sought-after music collectibles of the last 55 years. I'm just a schnook. Well, hello, hello. This is Autobiography of a Schnook, Chapter 12, and this is your host, Sean. I'm a schnook. Summer is just about coming to a final wrap-up, and I don't know what else to say about that. It's been a heck of a busy summer so far. So busy that I couldn't even put out an episode in July, so I'm doing two for August. Yay! There's a lot going on in this episode, so I'm just going to get straight into some uh, feedback that I received. This is from uh, Eugenio. He says, Dear Schnook, that's me, I take it. I have never sent you any feedback, so I thought it was about time I did. I've enjoyed listening to your episodes, and it has been fascinating to hear some parallels between your experiences and mine through the years. While listening to your latest episode as I was driving back to Miami from Orlando after attending a conference, I found myself laughing a bit after your discussion about hot dogs and pizza. You see, I grew up in Puerto Rico, where my experiences with Both of those food items were different from yours. I will say that in Puerto Rico, hot dogs are eaten with ketchup. (gasps) I know you listed a ton of countries that do not use ketchup on their hot dogs, but it would seem we Puerto Ricans just want to be different. A hot dog is not a hot dog without ketchup. Imagine my surprise to learn we've been doing it, quote unquote, wrong all this time, at least for the 52 years of my life. Sadly, it will be a very difficult habit to break. And I'm going to stop right here. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't know what to tell you. Maybe, all right, I, want to, I want to know. I want to know from people who do put ketchup on your hot dogs. The whole reason that people say do not put ketchup on your hot dogs is because the ingredients of the ketchup kill off the beef flavor of the hot dog. I want to hear from people who do put ketchup on their hot dogs. I promise I'm not going to berate you. Specifically, I want to know this. Can you still taste the actual hot dog that's what i want to know can you still taste the actual hot dog once you put ketchup on it and how much ketchup do you actually put on it do you put a little do you put a lot let me know autobio at schnookpodcast.com is my email address anyway getting back to uh eugenio's feedback here as for pizza we mostly have tossed pizza and we eat it with our hands and just like everywhere else i guess the crust is typically thick enough that there's no need to bend the pizza slice The thickest pizza I had eaten for years was the pan pizzas from Pizza Hut, but a friend of mine from Chicago introduced me to Chicago-style pizza quite a few years ago. I have to agree with you, one has to be careful choosing the size of the pizza. A large pizza anywhere else can be had by two people, but there's no way two people can eat an authentic Chicago deep dish pizza. (laughs) Yeah, no way. By the way, I had just eaten pizza from one of the fast food chains just before I listened to your part of the podcast talking about pizza. And I started to laugh when I heard you say there should be no reason to bend a pizza slice to eat it. Guess what I just had to do to enjoy my two slices? Yep, it was bend them or see the pizza toppers fall on the plate. Anyway, I thought I'd share some feedback. Keep up the good work with your podcast. It's entertaining to listen to it and getting to know you better via the episodes. Well, thank you. Oh, he goes on. P.S. I remember you mentioned Mall of America in Minneapolis. I've been there and I walked all of it and did the rides in the middle of the mall. He's talking about Camp Snoopy, I'm guessing. It has been quite a few years. I did not bother looking at the map and found myself seeing all the repeat stores as well. 
All right. Thanks a lot, Eugenio. I was, I'm, I was really thrilled to hear from you as I'm thrilled to hear from uh, just about everybody here. Again, schnookpodcast.com. Autobio at schnookpodcast.com is uh, my email address. And my phone number is 312. Oh, wait, wait. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, yeah. Uh, forget I said anything. <laughs> uh, autobio at schnookpodcast.com. Uh, anyway, why don't we get into some actual self-indulgence in this podcast. The first thing I'm going to talk about, well, it's about a part of my life I never really gave a lot of attention to in this podcast before, but for a reason that'll become apparent eventually, I'm going to call this segment Aunt Jemima's Pancakes. And by the way, due to the nature of the topic of this segment, there will be some uh, profanities in there, but don't worry, they're all bleeped. It's been 24 years since I last got that dreaded August phone call. We didn't have caller ID back then, but man, I could tell just by the vibe coming from the phone when it rang that it was the call. I was a commuter student. Not that that would have mattered because I would have been home anyway, even if I lived on campus. But God, when that phone rang and I heard my dad call my name, my life was essentially over. I'd have until the following Monday to settle my affairs. It was a day I dreaded every August during my four years in college, and I have an Emmy Award-winning cameraman to thank for that. It all started in the summer of 1992. I was about to enter my freshman year of college. My mom called me to the phone because a coach from the College of St. Francis was asking for me, so I picked up the phone. Hello? Hi, Sean. This is Coach Tim Allen from the College of St. Francis. How are you today? I'm okay, thanks. Good. I learned very quickly that that is uh, how every phone conversation went when Coach Allen called someone. He'd introduce himself, say, how are you today? His interlocutor would answer, and he would reply, good. Coach Allen dropped the name Pat Keating on me. I went to high school with Pat, and his parents were teachers there, actually. I do believe I mentioned in a previous chapter that I had Mrs. Keating for English my freshman year. Apparently, Pat had given my name to Coach Allen as someone who might be a good person to have on the college football team's equipment managerial staff. Why? Well, because when I was an equipment manager on the high school football team my senior year, Pat saw me working in a couple of the games. So anyway, Coach Allen said to me, I will pay you $1,500 a year in the form of a scholarship if you join the football team as an equipment manager. Hmm, let's see. It was actually a lot of fun in high school. I got to go to all the games, sideline view of the game, just had to fill a few water bottles, tighten some screws on a few football helmets now and then, and that was pretty much it. A few friends of mine urged me to do that job after our junior year. Oh, Sean, you got to join us next year. It was so much fun. If we go to state, we stay overnight at a hotel, and all you got to do is show up to the games. Well, sure. Sure, you got me. Uh, we didn't end up going to state, unfortunately, my senior year, but it was still pretty cool. When I was talking to Coach Allen on the phone, I thought back to my senior year of high school working for the football team, and I thought about how the less tuition money I needed to fork over every year, the better. So I accepted. Well, it turns out it wasn't going to be quite as easy. I'd have to go to all the practices, including during the summer, and it's not just filling water bottles and tightening helmet screws, but also handing out all the equipment, the game uniforms setting up the tackling dummies at the practice field, and I'm sure the famous job description bullet point other duties as assigned was in there somewhere. 
a lot more work, but hey, at least I knew I'd be working with Pat, so I already knew another one of the managers, and with some money knocked off my tuition, hey, I couldn't refuse. Coach Allen and I met in the head coach's office. The head coach? Gordy Gillespie, a legendary football coach who brought four straight state championships to my alma mater, Joliet Catholic. He left Catholic High a few years before I attended, specifically to start up the football program at the College of St. Francis. I was awestruck. Holy God, I was sitting on the legendary Gordy Gillespie's couch in Gordy Gillespie's office. I didn't get to meet him that day, though. He was away on vacation or something. Well, Coach Allen, what exactly did he coach? Actually, he wasn't really an active coach at the time. He had been a coach of uh, various sports over the years, but then he was basically just head equipment manager. He was my boss, really. One of the first things he told me was that he had a short temper and that he was pretty embarrassed by it, but he also said he would apologize any and every time he'd blow up. Coach Allen was an interesting character. He was loud. He obviously hated women the way he spoke about them. I think there was a theory going around that he was about to be married and the fiance dumped him at the last second or something. I, I don't know. That was only a theory. I, I really don't know. But uh, Coach Allen loved mercilessly bashing freshmen, too. I remember one day in particular, he was in a really crabby mood and he made it no secret how the freshman players were getting on his nerves. At some point during the day, he said, In football, you do weeks of practice in the hot weather, but you play most of your games in the cold weather. What kind of moron came up with that idea? I said, probably a freshman. He laughed and said, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. The first week of the summer practice season, we had to assign players to lockers, load the lockers with the appropriate equipment, such as practice jerseys, practice pants, pads, girdles, and of course, jock straps, or as Coach Allen would call them, nose guards. There was one player in particular that Coach Allen made it perfectly clear he could not stand. I first found out about him when we were loading the lockers with practice shorts, and he said, Give asshole the shittiest pair you could find. I said, uh, who's asshole? <laughs> now, I'm not going to use his real name, so I will just call him Mark Petrovic. Pat spotted a really ugly yellow pair of shorts with a not very reliable elastic waistband, so he added it to the stack in Petrovic's locker. From what I was told, Petrovic, who was a junior at the time, was literally a criminal. I heard the phrase drug dealer thrown around when his name was mentioned, which made me wonder why the hell he would have been part of the team if he truly was a known criminal. Pat had told me that he was talking with the principal at Mount Carmel High School where Mark went. And he said, oh, by the way, I know a former student of yours. He's quite a character. His name's Mark Petrovic. And the principal said, he's a criminal. He's a criminal. I clearly remember, though, Mark Petrovic's reaction when he opened up his locker and he saw those crappy yellow shorts. He took them out, held them up, and said, sweet! Another guy on the team, Murph, uh, that was actually his name, Murph. Not Murphy, but Murph. Apparently, he had a reputation for complaining about everything. So we intentionally loaded his locker with crappy stuff just to trigger him. Sure enough, he came over to us to complain, but Coach Allen just laughed at him and handed him a completely different stack of equipment. Turned out that despite his reputation for complaining, Murph actually was a pretty good guy. People just love hassling him. He had a little bit of an ego, but generally he was a nice guy. Nice guy. But then the big moment came. I finally met the legendary Gordy Gillespie. 
Honestly, though, I don't remember a hell of a lot from meeting him the first time. Just that he was quite friendly. He introduced himself to me. Hey, Shawnee, how you doing? I'm Gordy. I can talk about him more in general rather than that specific meeting. He did make it clear that if I had any problems, I was to come to him immediately. Something I quickly learned about Gordy. Just an incredibly nice guy who loved everybody. And he was not afraid to tell people that he loved them. You remember that movie, Rudy, from 1993? For those of you who haven't seen it, Sean Astin is in it, and he plays the title character. The guy named Rudy in that movie was Dan Rudiger. Uh, I've encountered a lot of Rudigers during my years in Joliet, and they have two things in common. For one thing, they are all related. If you meet two different Rudigers, I guarantee you they're related. The other thing they all have in common is they all call themselves Rudy. But anyway, in that movie, Rudy was a little guy, but he played high school football, and his lifelong dream was to play football at Notre Dame. And wouldn't you know it, because Gordy coached Rudy, he was actually portrayed in the movie. They just called him Coach Gillespie, though. They didn't use his full name. But unfortunately, the Coach Gillespie that was in the movie Rudy was not the Coach Gillespie that I knew. Coach Gillespie in the movie was your standard-issue guy in a whistle. It would have been much more accurate if George C. Scott played Gordy. All you'd have to do is pretend he was playing Patton again. Practices, though, let me get to that. Uh, They were held at Pershing Elementary School, where there were two full-length football fields just a few feet away from each other, and off to the side, there was a much smaller field. The college football team used all three of those fields. On the end of the fields, away from the school, is Faith Lutheran Church. They had a sizable parking lot that they very generously allowed us to use as long as there weren't services going on. So basically, if it wasn't Sunday morning, we were pretty much good to go. You park in the church parking lot and you walk onto the practice field in the opening between the fences and you'll find a couple of picnic tables. Once in a while, people would stop by and watch the practices, but usually the picnic tables were occupied by our training staff, maybe a coach or equipment manager during a downtime, sometimes a player or two who was injured or taking a break. I think my first memory of being on the practice field was Coach Allen telling me about another guy named Billy who'd be a manager with me. Coach said, he got hit in the head when he was a kid, so if he's a little slow or he suddenly stops in the middle of doing something, just be patient with him. Okay. He was away on vacation with his parents. I think he was in Fort Myers or something. And I think it was the next day that he actually arrived. So I saw him come on and I introduced myself. I said, hey, are you Billy? I'm Sean. And he said, I'm Bill. Um, I need to talk about Bill or Billy, as a couple of people called him. I think he preferred Bill. He was, um, well, he still is, obviously, a year or two older than me. And yeah, just talk to him for a second, and you'll know right away that things aren't right. Coach Allen put it too nicely when he said that Bill got hit in the head. It was a lot worse than that. The story that Bill told me was that when he was a little kid... He and his friends were playing ball, either shooting hoops or throwing a baseball around, I don't remember, but the ball rolled into the street, and you can see where this is going. Um, There was a bus that was stopped in the middle of the street, and the driver waved to Bill, kind of telling him that it was clear, go ahead and get the ball. And while Bill was retrieving the ball, a car came speeding down the street and ran him over, and he was in a coma for two weeks, but he recovered, except it really, really screwed up his memory. Bill told me he couldn't remember a single thing about his life from before the accident. He and his family won a ton of money in the resulting lawsuit, but Bill said he would happily give it all away if it meant he could have his memory back. 
He told me that it was always his big dream to be an all-American athlete. He wanted to play football, basketball, soccer, baseball, you name it. Of course, after the accident, he couldn't play. If he got hit in the head again, he might not live to tell about it. But because he loved sports so much and he couldn't actually play, he would do anything remotely related to some kind of a sport, so he joined the football team as a manager. And I believe he also worked for the basketball team at the college. And despite his injury, he was actually a student at the college. But due to his condition, he was excused from taking any tests and doing homework and that kind of stuff. So how and why did he get in? Well, all right, I know this sounds terrible, but I think it was, well, money, really. I, I don't mean to sound terrible, but judging from conversations I've had with coaches and friends of his, Bill's father, who is a very successful insurance salesman and very wealthy, wanted Bill to have as much of a normal life as possible, including the full college experience, including living in a dorm. From what I could tell, Bill didn't really have that much trouble adjusting to college life. He did have a lot of friends to support him, and I think Bill's roommate made sure that he got along okay. He was in my graduating class, by the way. Uh, of course, because of all the circumstances, he couldn't actually get a actual diploma. So his sheepskin, as it were, said something along the lines of certificate of achievement. But God, it's just, it's, it's a shame to see how that one accident screwed him up. On the surface, he looked great. He looked like freaking Tom Cruise, but he spoke with a slur and sometimes he had a hard time finishing his sentences because it would take him a long time to complete a word. Like, he, he would suck like th this a lot. Sometimes he would start his sentence just by saying, well, well. And a lot of times he would forget what he was going to say. So his, his sentence ended up being, well, sh <laughs> He learned to laugh about that. But still, that's a terrible thing to have to go through. I felt so bad for him. But Bill told me that if I were to ask him to do something, he would do it right away and as fast as possible so he wouldn't forget, because he knew that he had a terrible memory. But man, it's seriously, that must have sucked to be him. Not being able to remember things, having to write down just about everything somebody says to you. It's not that his memory was completely 100% shot. He would eventually remember things, but it would take him a long time and a lot of repetition. It took him a while to learn my name, but of course, I, I completely understood. There were a few things about him you'd catch yourself being slightly envious of, though. Again, he looked like Tom Cruise. He drove a really badass Jeep Grand Cherokee, and uh, yeah, he was actually able to drive. Uh, not the greatest driver in the world. He had some really annoying driving habits, like uh, especially at stop signs, but uh, he basically the same kind of driving habits anybody else on the road would have, I guess, really. And despite not being able to play organized sports, he still had a lot of athleticism. Sometimes during downtime at a practice, we'd throw a football back and forth. Or back at the college, after practice, we'd shoot some hoops. And good God, he gave me a hell of a workout. And that's despite a leg injury. He had a separate leg injury, not, not related to the car accident. And he had a permanent limp as a result of his leg injury. The other thing that you'd catch yourself admiring about him girls loved him he had zero trouble attracting women or talking to them he he knew how to charm them he was quite proud of himself for that but he would also say that he'd give it all up if he could get his memory back but what i can tell you about my experiences with bill he was seriously a huge help in the practice field and on the sidelines 
He was a fantastic worker. He had a great attitude. So among the managers, besides Bill and me, there was a junior named Jeff. He was kind of the lead equipment manager among us. Uh, Coach Allen told me that I would be in that position after Jeff graduated. I think the main reason Jeff was uh, an equipment manager was kind of getting a foot in the door into coaching. He wanted to learn how to coach, so this job helped him. And, of course, there was Pat Keating. But by the time I joined the team, he didn't do much in terms of handling the equipment except basically helping Bill and me learn the ropes. As a journalism student concentrating on TV production, he kind of stepped away from that role to be a videographer for the games and the practices. After the games, he'd make copies of the game for the coaches, separating the offense plays from the defense plays and the special teams plays, and they'd all go on separate tapes. We also had a guy named Jared, whom I knew from high school. He was in my graduating class. Jared, uh, he, he got away with, well, not doing much at all, basically because everybody knew him and his father was a pretty popular coach in the area. Hey, it's your dad's coach Voss. And yeah, he got away with a lot. One thing I'm very grateful for, though, without being asked, Jared would collect the uniforms after the games and launder them. The last thing I wanted to do was handle jock straps, but thanks to Jared, I never had to do that. One of my most important duties on the practice field and on the sidelines at games was to make sure that the water caddies were full and, if at all possible, cold. Well, I'll tell you this, the cold part was a rarity. It happened, but it was rare especially during summer practice, and the players were not shy about letting me know about the rarity of the cold water. Um, sorry, fellas, not much I can do about that unless I can convince Oscar, the athletic trainer, into sparing a cooler of ice. Oh, uh, by the way, water caddies are basically big yellow plastic tanks on wheels. A water caddy had a twist-on pump and four hoses. To dispense water, you'd pump the caddy and squeeze the handle of one of the hoses. One sound that nobody, nobody wanted to hear was kind of a suction sound. If you heard that sound, it meant that the water caddy was running dry and there were maybe two drops left. Thirsty football players are not happy football players. You can't blame them running their butts off and especially during the summer. I remember hearing Gordy once tell the players, if you're thirsty, go get a drink. If you're not thirsty, get a drink anyway. I think the third day of practice, I had my first direct experience with Mark Petrovic. Pat and I were in the equipment room after the morning practice, and Mark walked in. He told us that he was representing the team, and that everybody was complaining that we've been packing the water caddies up too early. I said something along the lines of, really? We keep them out until pretty much everybody leaves the field, so I don't know why anybody's complaining. Well... Mark didn't like what I said, and he told us to leave the water caddies out longer or else he'd, and I quote, slap the both of you motherfuckers around. Pat just sighed and said, okay, Mark, we'll do our best. After Petrovic left, Pat said, come on, let's go talk to Gordy. So we took a walk up to the athletic office, dropped in on Gordy. Hey, Sean and Pat, my nuts and bolts. He'd often refer to the equipment managers as the nuts and bolts of the team. Good to see you guys. Come on in. And Pat said, hey there, Gordy, you told us that if we ever have any problems to come to you and let you know. And the smile on Gordy's face kind of turned to a little bit of concern. And Pat continued, well, Mark Petrovic just physically threatened us about complaining about the water caddies. Oh boy, Gordy was pissed. Oh, he did, did he? You guys 
listen, I just can't have this on the team. You guys are busting your balls down there. This, this is just unacceptable. Listen, I'll talk to Mark. If he so much as lifts an eyebrow at any of you, he's off the team. Now, if you hear this, you're probably thinking, okay, it's just lip service. He's just saying this to you know, make us go away. Well, I am pretty sure he actually did have a little chat with Mark because after that, Mark hardly said a word to us ever again. And in fact, the next time he talked to me was a few days later on his way out the door. He just looked at me and said, have a good evening. Seriously, Gordy did look out for everybody. And um, he also wasn't afraid to let the players have it if they were screwing up. I quickly learned a lot of Gordyisms. Oh, and he also had his conversational idiosyncrasies, especially with people's names. When I was a freshman, there was a sophomore on the team named Derek Rolfingsmeyer. R-O-L-F-I-N-G-S-M-Y-E-R. Rolfingsmeyer. Pat and Coach Allen told me that Gordy was calling him Rufflesmeyer the previous year. Well, we think that somebody told Gordy that he was saying Derek's name wrong because now Gordy was calling him Rafflesmeyer. And I even saw poor Derek's name written down in Gordy's roster. R-O-F-L-S-M-Y-E-R. Before my time on the team, there was a player named John Chapetto who, for God knows what reason, Gordy invariably called him Henry. And Coach Allen told me how he once overheard Gordy quietly singing American Pie to himself and, uh, what a disaster that was. Bye-bye, American Pie. Drove my car to the lake and everything was dry. <laughs> yeah, uh, but a- as for the Gordyisms, though, during practice, you could play bingo with things that would come out of his mouth. If players weren't moving fast enough during a run-through, he'd tell them, You're like Aunt Jemima's pancakes out here! If someone made a wrong move when running a play, he'd yell, Why don't I get my grandmother out here to do this? Or maybe he'd yell, I can't believe you can't do this. I can, and I'm 94 freaking years old. Truth is, Gordy was only 68, but the running joke was that he was easily 100. Sometimes Gordy would say, are you Polish? Which actually did offend one of the freshmen one year. And I remember Joe spoke up and Gordy just looked at him and just yelled, I've never insulted anybody in my life. And Gordy actually looked upset over that. Because the thought of him actually upsetting someone, I think, really, really got to him. But probably the most common thing you would hear Gordy say to somebody was, I'm going to trade you for a dog and shoot the dog. One story that I heard from multiple coaches was about how one day during a time when the football practices were held at a field adjacent to a cemetery, Gordy got so fed up with how poorly some run-throughs were going that he stormed off the field, climbed over the fence into the cemetery, and laid down on top of a grave. Not knowing what to do, a couple of the assistant coaches walked over to him and said, Um, coach, you okay? And Gordy said, Don't talk to me! I'm dead! Then there was a time, a Monday, after an embarrassing loss in Nebraska, Gordy started practice by screaming at the team. Part of the lecture involved the sentence, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. And from what I heard from some of the players, he was dead right. I didn't work at that game, but they said, yeah, we completely blew it. We were terrible. But also, part of that screamed lecture involved Gordy saying how the game was, and I quote, like masturbation at dawn. And uh, believe it or not, nobody spoke up and said, "Uh, excuse me, coach, uh, could you please explain what you mean by that? I also learned, though, that Gordy was not shy about complimenting the players, too. And this was especially noticeable after our first game my sophomore year, which was against Illinois State University, a pretty big honking school. 
a very poorly matched lineup. There was no way in hell that St. Francis should have been playing against Illinois State, ever. As soon as I heard the schedule, I knew right away we were going to get our asses beat. And sure enough, we did. The score was 48-3. to In the locker room after the game, the first thing Gordy said was, I just want to tell you guys that I'm very proud of you, each and every one of you. And why did he say that despite such a huge lopsided loss? Well, because from Gordy's eyes, every person on that field did exactly what he was supposed to do. They were all lined up where they needed to be. They ran the plays exactly as they were supposed to. It's just that the Dinky College of St. Francis was just no match for the Illinois State Redbirds. But speaking of losses, though, I got to tell you, losses were the norm, which was a very, very hard thing for me to get used to. You see, I'd gone to every single Joliet Catholic game in 1990 and 1991, my junior and senior years there. In those two years, there was one loss. One. I was so used to a football team that, well, won just about everything. The first game I watched at St. Francis, loss. Second game, another loss, despite a very well-planned final play that could have won it for us. Third game, in the final seconds, the score was close. We scored a touchdown. Extra point would have tied the game. Two-point conversion would have put us ahead. Not wanting to settle for a tie, Gordy opted for a two-point conversion. He thought, yeah, this is very risky, but I'd rather go down with a fight. In fact, Gordy would very often go for two points after a touchdown. His philosophy was, why go for only one if you can get two? Well, um, we actually ended up crossing the end zone and we got the two-point conversion. Unfortunately, the other team, I don't remember whom we were playing, but the other team returned the following kickoff within field goal range. They'd easily score and beat us by two points. But when they lined up for a field goal, Gordy called one by one the tallest guys on the team to take the field. Dan Lennerer, Dan Clausen, Jim Edson, Mike Gavin, Brett Binkowski, and so on. The play begins. The kick is up. Oh, it's almost up because the kick was blocked. Oh, time runs out. Fighting Saints win at the last second. And yes, that was our nickname, the Fighting Saints. My first couple of years at the school, the mascot was a bald monk in a robe on roller skates wearing boxing gloves. You know, a fighting saint, get it? Because St. Francis, ha uh, My junior and senior years, though, the mascot changed to a St. Bernard. Because a St. Bernard is a saint, um, even though it's the College of St. Francis, not the College of St. Bernard. Uh, oh, and by the way, our fight song was a Dixieland recording of When the Saints Go Marching In. Yeah, nothing wrong with when the Saints go marching in, but really, come on, people. But anyway, yeah, our record my freshman year, four and five. Ugh. My sophomore year, five and six. And I was really upset about that one. Gordy retired from coaching football that year, and I was really hoping his last year would have been a winning season. First year after Gordy left, the record was a miserable one and ten. And my senior year, four and five again. I was... So not used to going through four losing seasons. I found it strange, too, because when Gordy started the football program in the late 80s, St. Francis had a dynamite football team, even qualified for a bowl game in its first year of existence, but got screwed out of the bowl game because, well, the College of St. Francis wouldn't have attracted an audience. From what I understand, Mike Feminist, who was a player on the team at the time, he had become a defense coach by the time I was involved, but he was a player back in those days. Apparently, he was absolutely 
devastated when the team got snubbed. I felt bad for Femme for not having that opportunity to play a bowl game and also for coaching a losing team. And Femme's really a nice guy. He deserved better. And it was uh, this job on the team that kind of got me in the habit of just calling people coach because seemingly everybody I was meeting was a coach. There was Dan Sharp who worked directly with Gordy Gillespie. Really, really nice guy too. We had Ron Tomzak, who I believe was a defensive coach. His son, Mike, played for the Chicago Bears and the Pittsburgh Steelers, and his son, Steve, was on the college team as a fullback, if I remember correctly. The thing I remember most about Coach Tomzak was he would often arrive at the practice field, then go straight to a porta potty, and then I'd hear a blood-curdling scream coming from the porta potty he was in. He'd step out and I'd say, are you okay, Coach? He looked at me and said, there's a cat in there. I'm guessing he was dealing with a kidney stone or something, but same thing every day. He'd go in, there'd be a scream, he'd come out, and it got to the point one day where he just looked at me and said, Cat, see, there was uh, John Scully, who I think was an offensive line coach. Uh, He played for the Atlanta Falcons for a while, and he was also a concert pianist. But yeah, we had Coach Sharp, Coach Katowskis, Coach Seppet, Coach Emmerich, Coach this, Coach that, so screw it. If I meet you, I'm calling you Coach, just to make sure I have my bases covered. Then we had our defensive coordinator, who was, well, he wasn't my favorite person in the world, and he wasn't a lot of people's favorite person in the world either. As a spiritual work of mercy, I won't refer to him by his real name. I will call him Brian Jankowski. Gordy loved Jankowski, though. Well, then again, Gordy loved everybody. He'd say, Brian Jankowski? Oh, he's a genius. He could coach for the Bears if he wanted to. All I could think was, well, why the hell doesn't he coach for the Bears? Get him the hell out of here. And God knows the Bears need, well, anybody. Uh, Trust me, those of you who don't follow the Bears, in the mid-90s, they were miserable. Jankowski was one of the most annoying people I've ever worked with to this day. He was quite bossy, for one thing. He acted as if we managers were there specifically to serve him first and foremost. Before we did anything... We were to set up the cones for his run-throughs. When it came time at practice to change to a new activity or run-through, we were to make sure that his needs were catered to first, that the cones would be moved to the next place. Jankowski could be quite an odd duck. He told me he taught phys ed at Joliet Catholic High School for a while, and one of the requirements to pass his class was that you needed to be able to memorize and sing Bear Down Chicago Bears. Well, I guess I can't fault him for that. Sometimes people called him Sheen. That confused me at first because during one of my first days on the team, one of the other coaches asked me to bring something over to Coach Sheen, and I thought it was yet another coach I hadn't met, but no, he meant Jankowski. I thought perhaps the word Sheen referred to the shine that came from his completely bald head. Apparently, right before the season started my freshman year, he had a full head of hair, but one day literally every hair in his entire body just fell out. And the entire four years I worked for that team, his picture in the media guide was an old one from when he still had his hair, but eh, whatever. The story I was told about his nickname, though, Sheen, I don't remember who told me this, but allegedly that was his nickname bestowed upon him either in high school or college when he played basketball. Sheen was supposedly short for machine, as in scoring machine. I, I don't know how true that was, but hey, sometimes he was called Sheen. Jankowski made a big deal about the practice field being watered regularly, too. Inside the practice equipment shed, there was a huge watering machine, one of those things that was gas-powered and you had to connect to a water source. Uh, I, is that what you call it, a watering machine? I don't know. But any, that's what I'm going to call it for this podcast. <laughs> 
On his scheduled watering days, the machine officially got dibs on the water supply. Now, the way things worked at the practice field, there was a water pipe off to the corner, and the usual practice was we'd rig up a hose and fill the water caddies from that water supply. Because college football players run, do stretching exercises, tackle each other, wear heavy equipment under the sun, they sweat. And what do you do when you sweat? Well, you have to replace that water you lose when you perspire. So if any of the water caddies ran out, but the precious watering machine was bogarting the water supply, we'd have to interrupt the field watering temporarily so we could fill up one of the caddies. And of course, Jankowski would notice and yell at us, Hey, what happened? Why are we not watering the field? He told us, just connect the hose to the outdoor faucet at the church. Uh, no, they would not allow that. The pastor made that perfectly clear. Jankowski would have the field watered in the morning, too. I remember one time I drove past the practice field when it was pouring rain out. It was a freaking deluge. And the damn watering machine was still out on the field in operation, watering the field along with the rain. But I, uh, I mentioned before Gordy retired as head football coach at the end of my sophomore year, and then Jankowski became head coach. That was not fun. Perhaps the most memorable thing he did as head coach was, well... Make sure that on game days, nobody was allowed to eat anything but spaghetti. And I mean nobody. Just uh, follow me here. It was pretty common on days of home games that players and staffers would grab lunch in the college's dining hall. Well, Jankowski arranged so that the dining hall would only have spaghetti. Usually there was a pretty wide variety to choose from. There were burgers, salads, hot dogs, vegetables, fish, cold sandwiches, some kind of pasta, cereal, desserts. But on game days, nope, just spaghetti. That's it, nothing else. The desserts were taken away, the frozen yogurt machine was emptied, nothing, nothing but spaghetti. And yes, that meant that the students who lived on campus and had the meal plan were stuck with nothing but spaghetti. And they were pretty pissed off about that too. And when one of the players complained about having spaghetti all the time, Jankowski just said, spaghetti's good for you. I remember one of our away games when we went to Michigan Tech University. After the game, we had dinner at one of the restaurants in town. We sat down and uh, noticed that uh, nobody gave us a menu. But just like magic, food appeared. And it was spaghetti. Everybody got spaghetti. This was after the game. So you can't even use the carbo-loading excuse. You know when I last had spaghetti and tomato sauce? It was the last time Jankowski made me eat it. Yep, I haven't had spaghetti and tomato sauce since 1995, and it's all because of Jankowski. But getting back to the job itself, I worked for Coach Allen only for a year, and uh, it was an interesting experience. He had an odd sense of humor. If he was in a decent mood, he'd call everybody Schmedlap, apparently a reference to uh, Mad Magazine. Also, if you called his house and got his answering machine, you'd hear his outgoing message, which was him in character as his cat. Hi, this is Fluffy the Cat. I'm sorry, but Tim's not here. If you can leave him a message, that'd be great. If a player tried to return a piece of equipment that the player had no use for and we didn't really have any use for, Coach Allen would say, Do you have a girlfriend? And if the player said yes, Coach Allen would tell him, Well, send it to her as a souvenir. Dear Sweetie Pie, this is the helmet pad I used at the College of St. Francis. But true to his word, Coach Allen did indeed lose his temper a lot, especially on game days. But also true to his word, he always did apologize later for it. But that was one of the things I didn't like about that job, though. Walking on eggshells and not knowing which Coach Allen you were going to get. 
the pissy, moody Coach Allen who would give you a snotty, sarcastic answer if you had to ask him something, or the happy, jocular Coach Allen who might give you a goofy answer anyway but follow it up with any help you needed. Dealing with football players? That was an interesting experience in itself. I found that with very few exceptions, those who played defense were, well, assholes. And Mark Petrovic was a defense player, go figure. The big, huge guys whose job was basically to fall down on top of their opponents, the kind of guys you look at and you know right away you just don't mess with them, they were actually the friendliest guys in the world. Kickers tended to be lazy and entitled. One year we had a new player named Jim Hoff, H-O-F-F. When he came to collect his equipment, before we even said hi to him, he told us, look, my name is Jim. You got it? Jim. Not Jack, not Buzz, not f**k. It's Jim. And I remember Pat, Jeff, and I looked at each other, smiled, and said, we like this guy. There was an older guy in the team who transferred from another school. By older, I mean 24 years old, and already married, and he and his wife had several adopted kids. Darned if I could remember the guy's name, unfortunately, but I remember the first thing he said to me was that he had great respect for equipment managers, and he learned from his prior coach to not mess with them, and he assured me he would not be a problem. And by gum, he lived up to his word. He was very cool to get along with. In fact, one day he actually brought his kids and said, if you guys need any help, here you go. My kids will help you out with anything you need. I was like, okay. There was an even older guy. A 26-year-old freshman player, Steve Usina. The reason that he was 26 years old was that between the time he was in high school and college was he was busy fighting the Persian Gulf War. He was an ex-Marine, and he was quite a silly guy, actually. He was a good player and a silly guy. Uh, He had an interesting sense of humor, and I remember that uh, one story that I heard was that somebody once asked him, Steve, why don't you grow up? His response to that was, been there, done that, overrated. Then there was a guy named Terry Jones. He was one of the few defensive players who was genuinely a nice guy and also one of the few players on the team who had true potential for a football career. He once asked me if I could help him put together a highlight reel he could use to get his foot in the NFL door because he knew that I was a journalism major and I knew how to edit videotapes. I told him I'd be honored. Unfortunately, though, that was the last time he ever said anything to me about that. There was Justin Miller, another defense guy who... Had a crazy streak in him. We think he might have been on peyote, actually, but he was always good to us managers. He always looked out for us. I remember one day he was being treated in the training room. Oscar had a very strict no-swearing-in-my-training-room policy, even though he would casually drop some choice words in everyday conversation. But poor Justin, oh, he had a nasty injury at practice one day, and while he was in the training room, he accidentally stepped in a way that triggered his injury, and very badly. He took a deep breath and calmly said to Oscar, excuse me one moment. He limped outside the training room into the gym and screamed the loudest F-bomb I ever heard. Then he hobbled back into the training room and he sat back down on the table. Oscar thanked him for respecting the no swearing in the training room rule. Speaking of which, there was a strange rule that the team observed. No foul language if a woman was in earshot. If one of Oscar's female assistants was at the practice field and somebody dropped an F-bomb, you'd hear a chorus of football players saying, Hey! I remember once Mary Lynn Bruno, one of the trainers, said, I don't give a what people say around me, it's just a word. Speaking of which, I remember one time Gordy went off on a tirade that had a lot of choice language in it, and then he noticed that one of the pastors, white collar and all, from the Lutheran church was watching practice, so he yelled over to him, I'm sorry about that, father! 
I don't know if Lutheran pastors are called father, but hey, we can forgive him. Gordy's Catholic. I mean, but yeah, if you go to any kind of football field, though, you're going to hear some R-rated language. It's just part of the job, I guess. However, Gordy did get ticked off once when there was just a little bit too much of it happening one day. He said, who keeps saying f***? The next person who says f***, your entire line's going to be doing 20 push-ups, including your coach. Well, feminists didn't want to do push-ups, so he pointed at his players and said, you better watch your language. As for the games, well, the games themselves really weren't memorable with a few exceptions. I mentioned the block field goal that secured our last second victory one game. When I was a freshman, our last game of the season was at the Metrodome in downtown Minneapolis. I don't remember what school we were playing, but that was something. Two dinky colleges playing a regular season game in this massive arena. And there were, I think, 20 people in the audience. 20 people, not 20,000. 20 people total, both sides. I do remember, though, there were a lot of penalties during that game, a vast majority coming from St. Francis, and that prompted the PA announcer at the end of the game to say that the game had more flags than a Memorial Day parade. It's not so much the games that I remember, but the trips themselves when I worked away games. I didn't work all of the away games, but most of them. A few of the away games, for whatever reason, they didn't need all the equipment managers and other support staff, so they just kind of round-robin picked who would be going on the trips. I remember Coach Allen advised me to pray that I never get picked to go on the Nebraska trips because they were always painfully boring. And sure enough, all four years, I managed to avoid going to Nebraska. Of course, some of the away games would be overnight trips, and they'd usually put us four to a room. Well, except when one of the female trainers was on the trip, she'd always get her own room. I mentioned in a prior chapter that I had my first taste of deep dish pizza in Detroit, and that was during one of the college football games away trips when we were playing against Wayne State University. We stayed at the Hotel St. Regis downtown. Jeff was in the mood for some Chicago-style deep dish pizza, so we made a few phone calls and found a place that would deliver to the hotel. And, oh man, it was so good. Oh, and speaking of Detroit, most of our opponents were based in Michigan, which I didn't mind at all. I loved the Michigan trips. I found Michigan to be such a beautiful place to visit. Probably my favorite trip was the Michigan Tech trip when I was a junior. They beat the crap out of us, but man, for one thing, they treated us really well. Their, their staff was really, really nice to us. And I loved that their pep band in the stands repeatedly played In Heaven There Is No Beer. The thing I loved most about that trip was just seeing the Upper Peninsula. It was just so gorgeous up there, man. That's the only time I've ever been to the Upper Peninsula. I really need to do something about that. One year we played Ashland University in Ohio. We had dinner in their dining hall, and their dining hall was freaking amazing. It was uh, Their dining hall was like a really classy food court. There was an Asian station, there was a taco station, a burger station. Now, at the College of St. Francis's cafeteria, they would limit you to two hamburgers. If you wanted more than two hamburgers, sorry. One of the football players, knowing that, asked at the hamburger station, how many are we allowed? And they said, try to limit yourself to four per trip to the station. And they were like, what? We can have four, we can have four and we can come back and get more? For you? And they said, yeah, yeah. I actually worked with a guy later who went to Ashland University. He said, yeah, our cafeteria has actually won awards my sophomore year, we played against Kentucky State University, which involved an overnight trip to Frankfurt. And that was really the first time I ever had a beer. Yeah, I was one of those people who dutifully stayed away from alcohol because it was <gasps> illegal. Illegal. <laughs>
But I figured, hell with it. There's a lot of beer going around. I'll just have a can of Stroh's Light just to see why people love beer so much. It only took a few swallows for me to say, yeah, I'm just going to stick with Dr. Pepper. To this day, I'm not really a beer person. I mean, I get it. People like to get drunk, but man, there's got to be a better tasting way to do it. At least it was a pretty positive weekend for the team because we smoked Kentucky State. I think the score was something like 72 to 14. 72 was right, but the 14 might be a little bit high. I remember in the days leading up to that trip, Coach Jankowski was having a really hard time dealing with Mark Petrovic's antics, and he actually pulled Petrovic out of the starting lineup as a disciplinary measure, and if you ask me, it was a long time coming. Petrovic, of course, was royally pissed about that. Well, at one point during the game, Jankowski did put Petrovic in. The first thing that Petrovic did was intercept the pass and run it in for a touchdown. And as he spiked the ball in the end zone, he yelled, This is for you, Sheen! Perhaps the most memorable experience I had was when I was a senior. We had a couple of additional equipment managers at the time. I recruited my friend Tom, and Jared recruited his friend Tony. And I think they were both on the trip. Tony definitely was, because he talked half-jokingly about trying to order the adult movies at the hotel room. So I looked at the TV and I saw that it was a pretty simple setup. It was a TV connected to a box and the box was connected to the outlet for the cable. Thinking out loud, I said, you know, I'll bet that all the channels, the pay channels, the movie channels, the adult channel are actually wide open by default. And the sole purpose of that little box is just to block out the channels you didn't pay for. And if you order one of the pay channels, they probably just send a signal to the box that says, stop blocking this channel. I'll bet you that if you take the cable that's going into the box and plug it directly into the TV, you can get all the channels. Tony said, well, try it. So I did. I pulled the cable out of the box and plugged the cable directly into the input on the TV. And my theory proved absolutely true. All of the channels were coming in, the movie channels and, of course, the adult channel. And one thing that was interesting about that experience was during that time, Tony gave me a brief lesson in how there's a difference among X-rated, double X-rated, and triple X-rated movies, and that the hotel's adult channel would be considered double X, and here's why it would be considered double X. And Tony kept saying, oh god, I can't watch this, she looks too much like my girlfriend. But guess what, he kept watching it anyway, but... (laughs) Five minutes later, though, there was a knock at the door. I opened the door, and I saw what looked like practically every player on the team. This seemingly designated representative said, Um, Sean, um, we heard you know how to get the porno channel. Um, well, um, could you come to our room and do that for us? Yeah, Sean, come to our room, too, and do that to our TV. Yeah, we get them after you're done. And it's like, oh, my God. It's like, guys, look, all you got to do is pull the cable out of the cable box and plug it directly into your TV. Yeah, we don't know how to do that, though. You got to do it for us. Oh, good grief. So, yeah, I spent probably an hour going door to door to door, rigging football players' rooms, TV sets. So could I have refused? Yeah, I could have refused, but that would have meant hours of nagging and nagging and nagging. I figured, hey, this will be headache prevention. The thing is, I was miserable working on that football team. It was not for me. There was a lot of mental abuse. I mean, nothing, not like bullying or anything. It's just more like, man, I don't get paid enough for this. There were some great players and some great coaches that I worked with. And Oscar Krieger was an, was an amazing guy to work with. I don't know why, but a lot of people hated him, but he was a super nice guy. I guess they just didn't like that. He had rules that he expected to be followed. Boo hoo. And yeah, it did help pay for some of my college, 
partly because of that job, my second semester of college cost me literally $80. $80. When my parents got that tuition bill, they looked at me and said, we're not going to pay this one. You should be able to handle this. So yeah, I did. I paid for it with cash that I got for Christmas. (laughs) As for some of the people that I knew, well, some of the coaches sadly have passed on, like Ron Tomzak and especially sad for me, Gordy Gillespie. Uh, Gordy died a few years ago. I mentioned that Coach Allen was my boss only that first year, and that's because after that year, they didn't renew his contract. He stayed long enough just so he could train his replacement, who was Coach Boyder, the new offensive coordinator. And if that name sounds familiar, then you must have been listening to this podcast because Boyder was also my health teacher in high school. Coach Allen died a few years ago. Uh, Mike Feminist. Mike Feminist is currently in his 21st season as the head coach at St. Xavier University on the south side of Chicago. He's had some undefeated seasons there, and in 2011, he led the St. Xavier Cougars to the NAIA Football National Championship, and that's the only national title that any sports team at St. Xavier ever had. Oh, speaking of NAIA, St. Francis was NAIA Division II, and one thing that I distinctly remember about all the games there was the crappy, terrible officiating. There'd be receivers getting tackled before they get the ball with no pass interference flags being called. Sometimes they wouldn't blow a whistle until long after the player with the ball was tackled. In fact, the players even noticed that. And they would say, look, even if the guy's already on the ground, keep coming after him and hit him until the whistle blows. The officiating cost us a few games. It also might have won us a few games. That's how bad it was. And if you follow the NFL and you remember the officiating strike a few years ago, these are the same referees they pulled up from college football to work in the NFL. And you remember what a disaster that was. But anyway, um, going back to Femme and his uh, so far 21 years football coaching at St. Xavier, he's also had various former St. Francis coaches and players working with him, such as Brian Jankowski, uh, Jim Seppet, who was a coach at St. Francis. He was working with Femme at St. Xavier, too. And Mark Yanul, who was one of our football players, he was one of the big guys that I said whose job was to fall on you, but turns out he's actually one of the nicest people out there. He's still working with Femme over at St. Xavier. Somehow, Mark Petrovic actually graduated on time. Um, So my junior and senior years were Petrovic-free, thankfully. He would occasionally show up at our games to say hi to some of his former teammates. One night, I think when I was a junior, he happened to be hanging out on the sidelines at one of the games. As I was dealing with a water caddy, I just casually greeted him. Hey there, Mark. He responded, how would you like me to take that hose and shove it up your ass? I just laughed and said, I'm glad to see some things never change. Uh, Spoiler alert, my butt remained hose-free. Long after my tenure on the football team was over, I'd occasionally see Mark Petrovic's name in the paper a few times. I think he was playing for Joliet's semi-professional football team for a while. From my recent Googling, it appears that he now owns a party planning business in Chicago, which, uh, if I remember him correctly, that would actually be a perfect business for him. I'm not really sure what became of most of the other players, though. Bill Manor is still very involved in sports. I think he currently works at the Joliet Park District, where he's known as Mr. Hustle because of his work ethic. One night at a baseball game at the Park District, I think, they actually had Bill Manor bobblehead night. A few years ago, I went to a Joliet Catholic football game, and I actually saw Bill in the crowd. Holy hell, he looked exactly the same. 
in 20 some years, he hadn't aged a day. He still looked like Tom freaking Cruz. Dan Sharp left the College of St. Francis after my freshman year, and I actually bumped into him and his son in the summer sometime, and I said, oh, Coach Sharp, I'm really going to miss working with you. And he said, well, I really miss teaching high school math, and when the opportunity came up, I couldn't turn it down. So he went to Manuka High School, and uh, he ended up not staying at Manuka for long, maybe just a year or two, and then he moved over to my alma mater, Joliet Catholic, where he led the football team to six state championships. Sharp retired from there a couple of years ago, and I commented on Facebook that from what I could tell during my year working with him, Sharp seemed to shadow Gordy Gillespie very closely, emulating him as much as possible, perhaps in an attempt to be the next Gordy Gillespie. Well, one of Gordy's sons saw my comment and responded, that's exactly what he accomplished. That, that is a hell of a compliment. What about Tony, the manager who wanted the adult channel in the hotel room? Well, last I heard, he and his then-girlfriend ended up getting married. I think they have kids now. Uh, I forgot her name. I think her name's Tracy, but uh, they had been boyfriend-girlfriend since they were 13 years old. (laughs) And what about Jeff Maurer, the lead manager when I started there? Well, he actually was still there my junior year. It turned out that he was short a few credits, so he needed to go to school for another semester, so he worked with the football team again. Unfortunately, he got screwed. They only paid him half the scholarship for that, because the way they paid our $1,500 scholarships was $750 per semester. But since he wasn't going to be there the second semester that year, he only got the first $750, which I think was unfair. But Jankowski wouldn't do anything for him in that regard. Oh, well. I actually saw him a couple of years ago at the Chicago Bears training camp down in Bourbon A. I think he's a high school football coach now. I know he's married and has at least one kid. And what about Pat Keating, the guy who got me hooked up with this mess in the first place? Well, shortly after he graduated, I think within a year or two, actually, he landed a job as a cameraman with WLS in Chicago. That's the Chicago ABC affiliate. He's still there. And he usually covers, I believe, sports-related things, although he did, a couple of years ago, win an Emmy for coverage on a tornado that happened. So, yeah. As for me, well, I never had the desire to work in athletics again once that final second counted off the last game that I worked. Well, the truth is, I didn't have any desire to work in athletics to begin with, but man, I was so happy when it was all over. Just a few months ago, I had a dream that it was one of those dreaded August days and the phone rang and it was Coach Boyder telling me that it was time for me to report the football season was about to start. And then I remembered thinking, wait a minute, I already graduated. I don't work for these people anymore. So I just said, sorry, coach, I can't help you. And then I woke up and I realized, oh my God, that's right. I've been away from that school for over 20 years. I'm not doing that ever again. Woohoo! And I felt so happy. I felt so happy. Not to say that there weren't some valuable experiences, of course. Probably the most valuable experience was working with Gordy Gillespie. That was just a major, major honor. Shortly after I started working with Gordy, the furthest thing from my mind was the legendary status he had in Joliet. But instead, the reason it was such an honor was just what an amazing person he was. One of the most kind-hearted people out there. Coach, it was an honor to work with you. Everything you just heard me say about my experiences at the College of St. Francis on the football team, 
I've told these same stories to my wife. She always got a kick out of them. At the beginning of every season, we'd take team photographs and individual photographs, and she's seen the pictures of me from all four years. She's always amused at how you can tell by how my face looks, how I was getting progressively more and more miserable working for that team as the years went by. And while I'm thinking about it, there is another weird thing about Coach Jankowski that I would like to mention. Uh, There was one time um, he knew that I also worked at the Joliet Public Library. So one time he asked me to see if there was a copy of The Art of War available and to check it out for him. I said, sure, I'll do that. You have your library card? And he said, no, just use your library card. I was like, all right, whatever. So anyway, let's turn things around. Let's talk about uh, some musical stuff that happened actually almost 20 years to the day that you're hearing this, actually. And um, I'm going to call this story simply The Black Triangle. For over half a century, many Americans have been involved in a search for the elusive Black Triangle. The search has led people to do crazy things, drain their bank accounts, commit fraud against others, and even destroy their own property. Some underestimate the value of the Black Triangle, but find it to be so creepy that they don't actually want it. At a high estimate, there were about 750,000 Black Triangles out in the wild to be found. But doing the math, that's about 0.002 Black Triangles for every American, so the odds are not in favor of those who seek them out. And just to add to the mystique of the Black Triangle, there are many who actually have a Black Triangle and don't even know it. And by extension, don't even know the story of the Black Triangle. Going by my script, I have uh, gone two entire paragraphs so far mentioning the Black Triangle without explaining what it is or why it belongs in music for schnooks. You see, the Black Triangle to which I refer is a very particular version of a Beatles album that was only released in the United States. But first, let me give you a little bit of background. During the Beatles' professional recording career, they recorded specifically for EMI in London, with the EMI label Parlophone releasing their music in the United Kingdom and Capitol Records, which EMI had recently acquired, in the United States and Canada. It could take and did take literally an entire coffee table book to explain the story of Capitol releasing the Beatles in the States. I refer you to Beatles author Bruce Spizer, whose website I will link in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. But getting back to the Beatles, their typical practice was to record and release four singles and two albums per year on the Parlophone label. In England, it was standard to put 14 songs on an album, seven songs per side of the record. And with a few exceptions, the albums would not contain songs that were released on singles because the Beatles felt they'd be cheating their fans by making them purchase the same songs twice, essentially. When the music was released in the United States, however, things changed because in the U.S., the standard was 12 songs per album, ergo six per side. Not only that, but singles were released to promote albums. Keeping that in mind, the way the Beatles albums were released on Capitol bore little to no resemblance to their British counterparts. The Beatles' first album recorded for EMI, 
Please Please Me was already licensed to VJ Records here in Chicago, so Capitol didn't have the rights in 1964 to release the album, so they had to skip to the Beatles' second EMI album called With the Beatles. First, the album was retitled Meet the Beatles! Exclamation point when Capitol released it in January 1964, and the Beatles' breakthrough U.S. hit single I Want to Hold Your Hand, backed with I Saw Her Standing There, was included on the album. Uh, I'm not sure, honestly, how Capitol was able to release I Saw Her Standing There at the time, which is from Please Please Me and therefore under a license by VJ, but we'll let that slip by for now. In England, I Want to Hold Your Hand actually had This Boy on the B-side, and Capitol added that song to Meet the Beatles. So that's three songs before even touching any songs from With the Beatles. Given that U.S. albums usually cap off at 12 songs, that means that Capitol needed to grab about nine more songs to pad out the album. That means there are five songs left from With the Beatles just floating in limbo. What to do, what to do? Well, of course the thing to do was make another album using those five leftover songs. The Beatles had another hit single out, She Loves You, with I'll Get You on the B-Side. Swan Records in Philadelphia had the rights to that single, but not the album rights, which went to Capitol. And Capitol was fortunate enough to get an advanced recording of the song, You Can't Do That. So those songs, She Loves You, I'll Get You, and You Can't Do That, plus the five leftovers from With the Beatles, gave us eight songs to work with. To that, Capitol added Thank You Girl, a B-side of another single put out by VJ Records. That's right, at one point the Beatles had records out in the United States on three different labels. Capitol also added I Call Your Name and Long Tall Sally, two songs that the Beatles released in England only on an EP. But for those of you who don't know what an EP or extended play record is, back then it was pretty common in England, not terribly common in the US, to release a 7-inch 45 record just like a single, but there were actually two songs per side. It was great for fans who wanted more than two songs but couldn't afford to buy an entire album. Now we're up to 11 songs, not quite 12, but enough to make an album. Capitol called that album the Beatles' second album, and it was released in April 1964. Oh, remember how I mentioned that Capitol used two songs from that EP? And that an EP has four songs? Well, if you did your math correctly, that means there are now two songs that Capitol didn't stick on an album. So, what do you do with those? You guessed it, you make another album. And it just so happened that the Beatles released the film A Hard Day's Night, and an accompanying album at that time. In England, the album A Hard Day's Night had 13 songs by the Beatles. In the United States, the United Artists label actually released a soundtrack to A Hard Day's Night. In fact, that's why United Artists agreed to make the film A Hard Day's Night. They wanted to release a soundtrack album. The United Artists album, and uh, yeah, that means if you're doing the count, now we're up to four labels in the United States releasing Beatles music. Capital, VJ, United Artists, and Swan. But as I was saying, that United Artists album had Beatles songs that were in the movie, plus a handful of instrumentals, some from the movie, some not from the movie. So what did Capital do? 
They took eight songs from the British album A Hard Day's Night and reserved them for a new Capitol album, bringing the running total to ten songs. Hmm, a lot of songs, but ten might be too short to convince the public to buy the album, especially because some of the songs are also on the United Artists album from a month before. Solution? Come give me a Dinah Hunt, which is I want to hold your hand, but with the vocals re-recorded in German. At the request of German record executives, the Beatles recorded that and She Loves You in German to appeal more to German record buyers. So, adding Come Give Me Your Dinah Hunt brought the total to 11 songs, just enough to produce an album, which Capitol did, and they called it Something New, and that was released in July of 1964. Except for a few songs from the movie A Hard Day's Night, Capitol had pretty much released every Beatles song they had access to on various albums. I'm not sure why the rest of the movie songs were only released on singles, but the next album of new Beatles songs didn't come out on Capitol until December of 1964, and it was called Beatles 65. The reason for this delay was that the latest album the Beatles recorded for EMI, called Beatles for Sale, would not be released until December 4th. But Beatles 65 contained their latest two single sides, I Feel Fine and She's a Woman, as well as I'll Be Back, a leftover from the British version of the album A Hard Day's Night. That means that to fill out the album, Capitol would pull eight songs from Beatles for sale, making yet another 11-song Beatles album. That means that there are six songs left over from Beatles for sale that Capitol could put on another album, and they'd have to wait a while because the next album Capitol released was The Early Beatles, containing 11 songs from the British Parlophone label's Please Please Me album. Capitol was now free to release those songs because VJ's license to those songs expired. This means that Misery and There's a Place would be left without an album. But to put those two songs from Please Please Me together with the five leftovers from Beatles for Sale, well, Misery and There's a Place were recorded in early 1963, and here it's almost 1965, and there is a nearly two-year age difference between those songs. So putting Misery and There's a Place with some brand new Beatles songs wouldn't be a good grouping. So those two extra songs from the Please Please Me album were left in Capitol Album Limbo for another 15 years. But in the meantime, the Beatles were filming a new movie called Help. As with A Hard Day's Night, the group recorded several songs that were used in the movie and an accompanying album containing the movie songs plus a handful of songs that were not in the movie. That was the Help album that was recorded for Parlophone Records in England. The Beatles also released a single containing Ticket to Ride from the movie on the A side and another song called Yes It Is on the B side. Because of the Beatles' policy of not putting single sides on the albums, again with a few exceptions, Yes It Is wasn't on the British Help album. But Capitol had no qualms sticking it on an album in America. So Yes It Is brought the total number of usable songs Capitol could put on another album to seven. 
Capitol was able to get a hold of two new recordings the Beatles were doing for the film's accompanying British album, specifically Tell Me What You See and You Like Me Too Much. Now that means that Capitol had nine songs to play with, but Capitol needed at least two more songs to fill out an entire album. Again, the two 1963 songs that Capitol still hadn't done anything with, Misery and There's a Place, too old to fit properly in the album. So Capitol actually asked the Beatles to record two more songs so that the new album could be filled out. Well, the Beatles weren't exactly thrilled with how Capitol was taking their British albums and reconfiguring them to make more American albums. So they weren't going to put in a hell of a lot of effort to record quality material just so Capitol could make a quick buck. So they reached into their old club repertoire and recorded covers of two songs by R&B singer Larry Williams, Dizzy Miss Lizzie and Bad Boy. And thus the Capitol Records album Beatles 6 was born. Ah, but what about the songs from the movie Help? This time, Capitol, not United Artists, released the Help soundtrack in America, again using just the movie songs and some instrumentals from the movie. Four songs from the British version of the Help album, however, Yesterday, Act Naturally, I've Just Seen a Face, and It's Only Love, were not yet used on an album on Capitol Records in the United States. Keep that in mind. The Beatles' next album recorded for EMI in England, Rubber Soul, was released in early December 1965. This time, though, in America, the album Capitol Records released actually bore somewhat of a resemblance of its British counterpart. It had the same title, the same cover, and almost the same track list. Of course, because American albums have only 11 or 12 songs, some songs from the British version of Rubber Soul got cut out. Also, Capitol decided to shoehorn It's Only Love and I've Just Seen a Face from the British version of the Help album into the American version of Rubber Soul, meaning that two more songs had to be cut. The songs from the British version of Rubber Soul that didn't make it to the American version were What Goes On, If I Needed Someone, Drive My Car, and Nowhere Man. Now, those four songs from the British Rubber Soul, plus Yesterday and Act Naturally, six songs total so far, they were still waiting for an album release in the United States. Also, the Beatles had a new single to accompany Rubber Soul, Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out, a double A-sided single. Remember, it was the Beatles' policy to not put singles on albums, not Capitals. So that's two more songs. We now have eight songs to make a new album with. Uh, interestingly, there was also I'm Down, which hadn't been on an album yet. Why wasn't that in consideration? I don't know. But Capital needed at least three more songs to justify making an album. So what did they do? They reached out to the folks in England again and asked them to send three more Beatles tracks. EMI was tired of Capitol making these fake Beatles albums, or at least fake as they see it, but they did reluctantly send over three songs from the album the Beatles were working on at the time called Revolver, and those three songs were Dr. Robert, And Your Bird Can Sing, and I'm Only Sleeping. Now, of course, since those three songs were supposed to be on Revolver, what would happen when Revolver was released in the United States? 
That's right, it would be missing those three songs. But now, Capitol had enough tracks to make a new album, and that new album would be released on June 20th, 1966 under the title Yesterday and Today, uh, being a partial pun because it includes the song Yesterday in the lineup. Now, this is where the Black Triangle comes in. Now, most diehard Beatles fans know this part of the story very well. When Yesterday and Today was released, it had a very strange, potentially disturbing album cover. Beatles photographer Robert Whittaker had the Beatles pose for a series of photographs, and that little series of photographs was called A Somnambulant Adventure. The picture from that shoot that the album cover used featured the Beatles dressed in butcher smocks and holding pieces of raw, bloody meat and naked, decapitated baby dolls. This album cover became known as the Butcher Cover. Allegedly, Paul McCartney claimed it was the Beatles' way of protesting the Vietnam War, but many fans still to this day believe the undying but false rumor that the Beatles intentionally sent that picture as a statement against Capitol butchering their original Parlophone albums. But that's just plain not true, and one piece of evidence that it's not true was that that same exact photograph had been used in England to promote their single Paperback Writer in Rain, and there were no problems whatsoever in England. But in America, that same photo on the album cover caused a huge outcry. Disc jockeys and record reviewers had harsh things to say about the cover, and many record stores refused to stock it. Capitol recalled the approximately 750,000 copies that were released, and a new cover photograph was pasted over those copies. The replacement photograph was a pretty bland picture of the Beatles with a trunk, Paul McCartney sitting in the trunk, with the background airbrushed white. Now that last thing I talked about, the white background, is very important to the Black Triangle story. Meanwhile, Word got out that Capitol had pasted that new album cover over existing ones, so many Beatles fans who owned a copy of Yesterday and Today tried steaming the covers off to see if they happened to have one of those pasteovers. And sadly, many of those fans destroyed perfectly good album covers in the process. So that's surprisingly a very short version of the story of how the cover itself came to be. To explain it, I had to go all the way back to Capitol Records' first release of a Beatles album, which effectively caused a two-and-a-half-year chain reaction that led to the creation of the Yesterday and Today album. But what's this black triangle? Well, let's think about those poor souls who destroyed their otherwise good copies of Yesterday and Today to see if there's a butcher cover underneath that trunk cover. You don't need to remove the trunk cover to see if you have one of these collector's items. All you have to do is look at the white area of the trunk cover, specifically about an inch or two below the word today. If it's a paste-over butcher cover, you'll see an inverted black triangle bleed through. That's Ringo's black shirt from the butcher cover, showing right through the thin trunk cover. Once you first see that, you'll be able to spot a Yesterday and Today paste over a mile away. Oh, by the way, if your copy of Yesterday and Today has an RIAA Gold Record Award symbol on the cover, then sorry, you do not have a butcher cover. Out in the wild, there are various versions of the butcher cover. There's a first state butcher cover, 
meaning that the cover is exactly as it was released and never ever even had the new cover photo pasted over it. These are the most valuable. A second state butcher cover means that the album has the butcher cover, but with a trunk cover pasted over it. If the album has a butcher cover exposed after the trunk cover was removed, then it's considered a third state butcher cover. But let's say you find a second state butcher cover. Do you want to remove the trunk cover? Beatles author extraordinaire Bruce Spizer, whom I mentioned earlier, he suggests that if the trunk cover is in good shape, then leave it alone. However, if the trunk cover is not in good shape, then have it removed so that way you have a good butcher cover instead of a lousy trunk cover. As for how to remove it, well, you probably don't want to do it yourself unless you're an expert in glues. Different manufacturing plants used different glues to paste the cover over, and you have to be able to tell which plant, uh, Capitol Head Plants in Los Angeles, Scranton, and Jacksonville, Illinois, which plant was responsible for that album cover. I remember back in the 90s, there was a butcher cover fact going around that would tell you how to remove the trunk cover. And for one of the plants, the only known substance to dissolve the glue was saliva. But whatever the case, have a professional remove the trunk cover. You could do a Google search for Beatles butcher cover paste over removal or some other similar terms. And you'll find a few reputable people who do a good job of removing the trunk covers. Having said that, I haven't even told you the Black Triangle story that I want to tell you. First of all, let me just say right up front that I do not have a butcher cover. I do have at least one copy of Yesterday and Today, but only the trunk cover, not even a paste over. Somehow I doubt I ever will get one, as even though there were 750,000 of these things in circulation, dealers and collectors bought them all up and inflated the prices. I feel I can still live vicariously with others who are lucky enough to have them, though. My Black Triangle story goes back to August of 1999. My wife and I were just a month away from our wedding date, and we were visiting the Chicago area to go to Beetlefest at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. It was then when we learned how to detect paste-over butcher covers. After only a few attempts, we could spot the Black Triangle in the marketplace from several tables away. Ringo's telltale shirt always gives it away. We had fun going to various vendor tables and seeing how quickly we could spot the black triangle on the paste-over butcher covers that some dealers had on display. Really, though, that whole weekend was fun. Great guests, talented bands, memorable late-night jam sessions, and a great haul of stuff in the marketplace. Going back home to New Jersey was hard. We had such a good time that we went through withdrawal for a long time. But the following weekend, we had to meet with Jason, who was playing piano for our wedding. He and his older brother Derek were old friends of Lisa's. Lisa's mom bumped into Jason at a store. Jason hadn't seen Lisa in a long time. And she told Jason Lisa was getting married. And right there on the spot, he said, as a wedding present, he wanted to play for us. Naturally, we were thrilled. That's one thing taken care of for the wedding. And it was free to boot, so... That was an extra bonus, but there were a couple of songs Jason didn't have sheet music for. The plan was that as people would file into the church, Jason would play All You Need Is Love. I think that was actually Lisa's mom's suggestion. Lisa would walk down the aisle to In My Life. Now, Jason wasn't familiar with the Beatles, so he asked if we could bring in the sheet music. I happen to have the book The Beatles Complete Scores, which is a must-have for any Beatles fanatic who's also a musician. 
It contains transcriptions of literally every single instrument on every Beatles song. Drums, guitars, keyboards, whatever. It's done entirely by ear, though, and it's not 100% accurate, but the flaws are easy enough to fix. But we gave Jason photocopies from that book. I remember the double take he did when he saw the transcript for the piano breaking in my life. Even someone with the professional experience Jason has had over the past 20 years would find it a challenge, which undoubtedly is one reason it was actually recorded half speed in the studio. At the time, Jason was still living with his parents, and his basement bedroom was basically a recording studio, complete with a multi-track reel-to-reel deck and an upright piano, at least one upright piano. If I recall correctly, at the time, he was leading a church choir somewhere in North Jersey, so the guy knew what he was doing. Still, though, he wanted to hear actual recordings of In My Life and All You Need Is Love. Keep in mind, this was 1999. This was before it was easy to just look up a song online on YouTube or something and give it a listen. Jason asked his mom to get out her old Beatles albums so he could listen to those two songs. Mrs. Webb was a first-generation Beatles fan, a screaming little girl from 1964. We told her specifically that we needed Rubber Soul and either Magical Mystery Tour or the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, but she just grabbed the entire batch and handed them over. But wow, wow, unlike most other prepubescent screaming Beatles fans, Mrs. Webb took very good care of her Beatles albums when she was a little girl. They were in absolutely immaculate condition. The covers were spotless, they had no writing on them, and the actual records themselves had vinyl so clean you could use them as mirrors. As we were flipping through the records, we saw a copy of Yesterday and Today. Still coming down from our Beetlefest high, Lisa and I laughed and said we needed to look for the Black Triangle. Uh, well, <laughs> the joke was on us. Clear as day, there it was. The Black Triangle staring at us through a perfect, unblemished trunk cover. Lisa and I both screamed like little girls, Mrs. Webb, come down here! She wondered what the yelling was about. We showed her the black triangle. She didn't know the significance. We told her about the butcher cover. She had no idea that was even a thing. Somehow she had never heard of it. We told her how she possibly had the holy grail of Beatles albums. She immediately took the album and put it in a hiding place because she knew that if her husband found out she had an album that could fetch a lot of money, he would try to sell it, and she didn't want to part with it. And Lisa did confirm that hiding the album was a wise choice. Apparently, she too knew that Mr. Webb would try to make a quick buck. As for our wedding music, well, all went great. All You Need Is Love and In My Life went off as planned. At some point in the service, my friend Bridget, whom I mentioned in a previous episode, she sang How Great Thou Art, and uh, she and Jason worked great together. We left the church to the strains of the end of Rhapsody in Blue. I know at one point Lisa talked about including God Only Knows, her all-time favorite song, but she changed her mind because she didn't want the line, I may not always love you, to be in her wedding. Well, that and Bridget said she didn't feel she'd be able to do the song justice. Uh, personally, I disagree with her assertion, but hey, what are you going to do? In the 20 years since, Jason has built a great career in music. One entry on his resume is that he arranged the rendition of the Battle Hymn of the Republic that was performed at Barack Obama's second inauguration. Jason has since become a Broadway conductor, and we actually caught up with him in New York a few years ago when he was conducting Motown the Musical. I believe he's currently conducting The Color Purple. He was recently featured in an article covering the sexiest conductors on Broadway. I'll post a link in the online bibliography if I can find that article. But if you want to find out more about him, look up Jason Michael Webb. 
W-E-B-B, in your favorite search engine. Also, in the 20 years since, neither Lisa nor I have seen the Black Triangle again outside of the Beetlefest marketplace. But with or without a butcher cover, an early pressing of yesterday and today is worth having. It has some unique mixes you can't find anywhere else, particularly with I'm Only Sleeping and What Goes On. Later pressings of the album have the more common mixes of those songs. And yes, it was pretty ridiculous for Capitol to create these fake Beatles albums. And let me be clear, Capitol was not the only American label to butcher albums of British artists. But because they did, we got some pretty cool stories and alternate versions of songs out of that questionable practice. Actually, that's not the only black triangle that's a Beatles collectible. In fact, if you were to go up to a diehard Beatles fan and drop the phrase black triangle, most likely that fan would think that you're talking about the first ever CD release of the Abbey Road album. Sometime in the mid-80s, Toshiba released Abbey Road on a CD that was released in Japan and it was available over here in the States as an import. However, when the Beatles lawyers found out about that, they put a stop to that because Toshiba did not have the right to release the album on a CD. They did have the right to release the album on cassette, and it turned out that the CD that they made was actually mastered from a tape that was made specifically for cassettes. The Abbey Road album has since been released officially by the Beatles only twice, once in 1987 and then a remastered, much better sounding version in 2009. There are still people out there who feel that the Toshiba CD is still the best sounding of them. Personally, I prefer the 2009 version. But regardless, hey, it's time that um, I close this chapter of Autobiography of a Schnook. If you wish to stay in touch with me before the next chapter, you can email me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. And I'm on Facebook. Look for Autobiography of a Schnook in your search field or go to facebook.com slash schnookpodcast. Schnookpodcast is also my Instagram and Twitter handle. You can follow me those ways too. And I thank those who made this possible, including the late, great Gordy Gillespie, the Webb family of Neptune, New Jersey, and of course, my ever-supportive wife, Lisa. So what's coming up next? Well, you're just going to have to download the next episode to find out. And like I always like to tell people, the good goes around. So give us all the good news from the sun. I'm close to you, just like one is from two.